At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Best in Show, episode 25. This is Best in Show, the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and KV industry. My name is Alan Messick. I'm an ARBA judge, rabbit judge from California, and I am joined each and every week by the fashionable and dignified Bryony Smith, also an ARBA judge and ARBA Standards Committee member and chair. Bryony, what's going on in Kansas? Well, um, summer is persisting. I keep seeing people talk about fall is here and do you have any fall litters? And no, we do not. We are still having summer weather. <laughs> I've actually been uh, keeping a buck in my basement to keep, get him ready to sire some actual fall litters when actual fall gets here. Do what you got to do, right? Yep. I'm pretty sure he thinks he's in rabbit purgatory, kind of surrounded by tile and cinder block. But but don't worry, he will be ascending soon and hopefully he'll be ready to go when he is. And his semen will be viable and ready to make more Dutch babies. Indeed. It's so funny. Yesterday um, in my grad program, the professor asked, what does PSL mean to you? I know pumpkin spice latte by Starbucks and, and it's, it's uh, you know, it's a, an apparel degree. So they're like, Oh, sweater weather. And I'm thinking, really? Is it, is it PSL season already? Because I'm still in a tank top and sweating like crazy and the rabbits aren't breeding and they're a massive mold. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this weekend we had uh, a big, rabbit family reunion out here on the west coast you know (laughs) when rabbit people get married it turns into it's there's like they outnumber the the biological family so kathy groves her daughter uh was married this weekend and there were more rabbit people in attendance than than there were family members and people came from all over the country and that's such a cool thing about what we do with the arba and our our rabbit and kb families like when when life stuff when family stuff like biological family stuff happens rabbit people still come to it because we are family yeah, yeah, we are. And, you know, we, we find a community of family, we stay at each other's houses, you know, we talk all the time. Um, yeah, we participate in those life events and really support each other through that. It's a wonderful part about this hobby. It sure is. I mean, I love my family, but I'm closer physically and uh, probably emotionally too to, to more rabbit from, and KV people than than I am my own family, whom I adore. I'm not saying I don't, but, um, you know, they, they are the people that I interact with more on a daily basis than, than my own family because I live so far away. 
Well, and they're people that we chose to involve in our lives because of a, you know, common interest, common purpose and things like that. Um, you know, we we can love people a lot, but sometimes if common ancestry and maybe some long ago memories is the tie that holds us together, we just don't always have that much to talk about. Um, you know, we're not as in tune to what's going on in each other's days and things like that. And, and maybe we should be. Um, but it, it rabbit people are the family we choose. And that's a really special thing, too. Yeah, like a, a messic family Christmas. It's like crickets. Uh, and anybody want to learn about the newest variety of the dwarf papillon? I mean, I could talk about that. <laughs> nope, nobody wants to hear about it. Well, speaking of family reunions, we've got the ARBA convention coming up in Louisville in October. Are you getting excited? I am very excited. Your desk must be full of paperwork right now. It is. Yeah. Um, we're actually, we're trying to do some things to to just help presenters out and help us out um, to make things a little less frantic at the convention. Last year, when we did the Zoom presentations, presenters set their pedigrees in ahead of time for review. So by the time we actually saw the animals, we'd already been through the pedigrees. Um, those had already been approved. And that actually worked really well. So we decided this year that uh, we would allow presenters to submit pedigrees for pre-approval. As long as they're received by October 1st, we will go through them. Um, we will you know, notify presenters if there are any issues, you know, missing information, things of that nature that need to be reexamined. And then um, any of those that are approved, and, and we told them, send as many as you want. Send your planned animals, send your backup animals. You know, we'll go through as many as you want. So those that we've already seen, we will not need to have those at convention. So presenters, if they choose to do this, can come to convention knowing that their paperwork is not going to be an issue. It's such a smart advent. I mean, I recall in, you know, old standards committees and watching when, when Randy was getting mini satin varieties recognized. I'm not saying his, but I remember back in those days watching varieties fail. They were awesome varieties, not mini satins, by the way. I'm not citing any specific examples, but awesome varieties failing because they had some glitch in their pedigrees. Because in those days, you went to the convention with your animals and your pedigrees. And on that day of presentation, that's when everything was reviewed. To to think about having your pedigrees reviewed three weeks plus before ever presenting the animals. I mean, what a massive uh, weight off those shoulders of COD holders. So smart. Well, that's what we hope. I mean, because we know it is stressful and, you know, mistakes happen. The convention is tiring. It happens towards the end. You know, people have been spending several days, you know, just watching these animals and making sure they're they're doing their best. And my goal for this year was not to have any paperwork fails. I already didn't make that because I did get a letter of intent that was not sent correctly and came too late to be corrected. Um, but that's my goal for the rest of the year. I want no more paperwork fails. Well, and that's a good point. I mean, if you do it ahead of time, with which those those rules already were in place about you know getting your your intentions in months ahead of time. That that's that's a given. But you know, you just kind of uh, alluded to it. But you know, when we go to a convention, we're busy as heck because these COD holders probably aren't just there for their CODs. They're probably if they're judges, they're judging. They're probably showing recognized varieties or breeds that they also in tandem you know wor have worked on for decades. Plus, there's the conferences, judges' conferences, there's the banquets, seeing everyone. I mean, all of that stuff takes time. And having that pedigree behind you, I mean, what a massive relief for these COD holders coming into Louisville this year. It's such a brilliant idea. Well, that is our goal. And and yeah, like I said, that was begun by Kathy last year. And, you know, we decided to expand that to in-present presentations too, because why not? Um, and also in times past, 
there were a smaller number of animals on the table. There were between, you know, four to six. Now we are looking at anywhere from eight to 12, depending on the method they're using. They were allowed to continue under the old standard, which they begun if they chose or to transition to the new standard. And there were various reasons that people made different choices. Um, One requires bring back animals for new varieties. Another doesn't. So some of the presenters who had last presented in Reno because the Zoom presentations were optional last year, they were not penalized if they chose not to participate in those. Um, You know, we have people who maybe don't feel like they have two plus year old animals to bring back. Um, that they've moved forward from that. So they decided to stay with that old presentation. But anyway, we're just looking at at more animals and too many animals to be looking at, you know, eight to 12 pedigrees per group and really do those justice on the table. You know, a lot of us griped, ants continue to gripe about COVID and the the ways we've had to alter our lives to, you know, to cope with it, such as Zoom. But a lot of good stuff has, has come out of it, like all those silver linings, like this pedigree advent to the standards committee and the options for COD holders to have their pedigrees of those presentation animals, you know, viewed and approved long before convention. That's an advent to COVID because we all had to figure the heck out uh, on how to do things that we normally do. So uh, not giving COVID any kind of credit, but <laughs> it's one of those silver linings that I, of, of many, I think that we're all going to later on be grateful for. And I certainly have many more in my personal life. Well, it gave us all, I think, just the ability to think outside of the box and maybe be more flexible than we'd ever really considered being before. I mean, we're, we're still adhering to all the rules. You know, the rules have a deadline that the pedigrees must be submitted, but they don't have a beginning date. Um, you know, so I, I yeah, I think that really kind of gave us the, the courage and maybe the initiative to start thinking about doing things a little bit differently and, you know, seeing where we could maybe make some improvements. I'm in a graduate program now, and it's based in LA County, and that's you know six hours from here, from from where I live. It's in a dream program that I've been interested in for years. But let's face it, I'm not going to give up my rabbits and my angora goats to to move to Southern California to to be in class. So they're com- well, almost completely on Zoom. We meet like once a month, and I did a grad program maybe five years ago. It didn't work out because it was online in Texas, but we never had a face-to-face interaction. I have to say, I, and I said this to my classmates and my professor tonight in class, I said, you know, Zoom's a new thing to us for, from the last year and a half. And this feels like we're all in the classroom. In fact, it's actually a little more intimate than it would have been um, in a classroom where, you know, someone's kind of snoozing in the back seat uh, or the back row of the classroom. You know, we're all we're forced to look at each other. Um, and and it's, it's working. I'm learning tons and I'm doing it from my desk. And it's different than online education from, you know, five years ago where you got stuff to read and stuff to turn in, but there was never any, you know, live interaction. And Zoom is, it's actually, I have to say, it's incredible. Yeah. um, I actually did the last two years of my bachelor's degree online a few years ago. And it was exactly that. I mean, there were some classes where we had message boards where we would discuss things, but there were some where we really didn't have any interaction with our classmates at all. Um, so it is, I mean, I, that worked okay for me. Um, but I, I kind of like this and, you know, if I think about going back for a master's degree, which, uh, I don't know, but, you know, I'm sure it'll be, that will be incorporated into that as well. I, I'm telling, and I want to tell you too, like, this is the time to do it. You could literally go to any university in the world right now from home and get the the degree that you've dreamed of because of the advances in technology that like zoom that have allowed us to almost do it face-to-face and let's think about like when you're in a classroom 
it's usually, it's not the professor's classroom. It's not like high school where it's a room that's, you know, designed to their aesthetics and, and their, their learning style. A classroom in a university is, it's white walls and chairs and a screechy, dusty old floor. <laughs> so you can do that over Zoom and it's actually much more intimate. It's, it's I'm, I'm a fan and it's only been two weeks, by the way. So I may, I may come back in a month and be like, okay, this, this is just terrible. I shouldn't have done this. But uh, for right now, I'm a fan. Yeah, well, that's great. So you should do it. Well, think about think it. about it. Okay, all right. So I think you've got a listener comment to uh, share with our audience tonight, correct? Yes, I do. We received a message from Spencer Goofenhauser um, to our Facebook page, which I do check those every now and then. Um, and Spencer says, "Hello, love, love, love the podcast. It's a podcast I've been waiting for and searching for for years. You guys are doing a great job." Thank you for capturing and preserving the wisdom of the greats in this hobby so few of us get to hear about firsthand. You have no idea how valuable what you guys are doing is. I wish you guys could have interviewed two-time Best in Show champion Linda Casella before she passed away several years ago. She had some great wisdom and gave of her time so freely. But you guys are preserving all that wonderful wisdom and history now. Thank you, Alan and Bryony, for doing this. I'm very grateful for what you're doing. And he did go on to suggest a few more um, guests that he thought would be great for the podcast. Um, a couple of those were Best in Show winners, Tex Thomas and Dave Cardinal. And I let him know that they are definitely on our list. Um, and, you know, that we've kind of thought about doing some episodes about some of the people in the Airbnb that have passed away, um, perhaps, you know, talking to some people who knew them well, some friends, perhaps even family members and, you know, not leaving them out um, just because they're no longer with us. Yeah. Thank you, Spencer, for that, that comment. I mean, I knew Linda, I'm sure Brian, you knew her too. She was, she was very dedicated to what she did. And there are so many others that, that were of the same make and design and model. And we still use their role models to us today. And unfortunately we don't have their stories in person, but we certainly have their legacy and all of their hard work in a, a bit of us. And so, so again, thanks, Spencer. And those comments mean the world to us, by the way. And, and you can send those to us um, through our Facebook page, which is, of course is The Rabbitry. So if you're not already doing it, follow The Rabbitry on Facebook. That's going to continue to be the hub for the Best in Show podcast. And you can find links to current and past episodes of Best in Show all in chronological order. And you can scroll on down, find a photo. It's easy to easy to figure out who you want to listen to. And there are links to all of the platforms which Best in Show is aired on each and every week, including Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, Google Play, you name it, Best in Show is on it. So please subscribe to The Rabbit Tree. Send us a comment on there. Or even better, you can email us at podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. And as I remind everyone, every week, your comments mean the world to us. And if you're subscribing on one of those platforms, Apple, Audible, Google, Spotify, drop us the best rating you possibly can and do drop a comment. We will see it and we'll read it. We really appreciate our audience and um, all the positive feedback we've received so far. And there's loads more coming. Yes, there is. So um, we chose 2015 to feature this year. Our guest, Phil Gould from the UK, had a very memorable year at the Bradford Show in England. So a um, few current events from the year 2015. In April, the World Health Organization declared that rubella had been eradicated from the Americas. In August, um, a little bit of a sad story, but something that gave us a little bit of closure. Some debris found on Reunion Island was confirmed to be from the Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, missing since March 2014. 
on September 11th, Queen Elizabeth II, having been on the throne for 63 years and 217 days, became the longest reigning British monarch in history and the longest serving head of state of any nation in modern history, surpassing Queen Victoria. And in November 4th, our neighbors to the north, Justin Trudeau, became Prime Minister of Canada. Do you have any guesses about top songs for 2015? Mm, 2015. Lady Gaga? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my, my first choice would be Celine Dion and Cher, but I'm, I'm sure I don't think they were singing. I'm sorry, ballads. I, know, I, I will digress. Um, 2015. I am, listen, you have a photographic memory and it's probably even beyond that. You hit on lots of your sensory skills when you remember things. I don't remember anything. Uh, and all of my friends can, can testify to that. Uh, so I'm sorry. I have nothing. Okay. Um, there was a female singer who was kind of a pop singer who had right, several me, okay, give me and okay, towards okay. the top. Okay. Um, I know. I know. I know. Is it Taylor Swift? Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> lucky guess because I, I don't like her music, but I, she's been, she's been kind of popular. Yes. Um, three of her songs, Shake It Off, Bad Blood, and Blank Space, were in the top 20 for that year. Um, the number one song in the Billboard year-end chart was Uptown Funk by Mark Ronson featuring Bruno Mars. Great song. Love that song. Um, I also love there was a YouTube video that went viral that put um, clips of dance performances from movies in the 30s and 40s to this song. And it's fantastic. That's if you fun. Have a chance. Go to YouTube. Look it up. Um, the very first star you see is Jean Harlow from a little clip from Redheaded Woman. And she's turning on the record player. You won't find any uh, dancing in Jean Harlow's movies because she could not dance. It runs in the family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the redhead, I mean, come on. It had you a redhead, correct? Yeah, we, we both pull off the, the fake red hair pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> So cool. Number two on that list was Thinking Out Loud by Ed Sheeran. Number three was See You Again by Wiz Khalifa featuring Charlie Puth. Number four was Trap Queen by Fetty Wap. And number five was Sugar by Maroon 5. Ah, great song. Maroon 5, another classic band that has, you know, transcended like, what, two decades now? It's pretty cool. Yeah, and I remember when they started, so let's not go with this classic thing. Oh, my God. I'm going <laughs> to guess right now you're not a Maroon 5 fan either. No, I do like Maroon 5. I actually do. But, I mean, I remember when they were first playing on the air, and it wasn't that long ago. I got yes. to see them um, a couple years ago at a conference I used to go to pre-COVID in Salt Lake City at a smallish show, and it was incredible. Does Adam Levine actually sing like he sings on the radio? Yeah, he does. Wow. I mean, that, that's a lot that that because when you hear him on uh what is that show he's on the voice the voice sorry i don't watch tv um <laughs> he doesn't sound like he sings you know it's totally different no no but he's got like he has an incredible range and a really strong falsetto um it, it was very good very cool all right ready for some rabbit activity absolutely what was going on in the rabbit world in 2015 all right because we are gearing up for a convention we are so excited about louisville the first thing I'm going to talk about was 2015 and the ARBA convention, which, Brian, come on, pop quiz, you know this. Where was the ARBA convention in 2015? Portland, Oregon. You got it. Portland, Oregon. And it hadn't been back in Portland since 1998. That was my first ARBA convention. So I pulled out the uh, convention uh, book from 2015 from that ARBA convention. 
And I went to the dedication page, and uh, I think it's a guy you know very well. Uh, Western Frontier Rabbit and KV Shows proudly dedicates this convention to our friend and mentor, Vern Palmblad. Uh, vor- born June 1st of 1924 on a farm in Gresham, Oregon, Vern began his hobby at the age of seven, joining 4-H the next year. He has held continuous membership in the ARBA and 4-H since 1949. He is also an inaugural inductee to the 4-H Hall of Fame back in 2004 and had 70 years of participation and service. And he earned his Airbnb judge license in 1977. Did you know Vern? I did. I actually remember the first time I met Vern. I think a lot of judges probably do. I was judging a show in the Medford area and Vern came up to me and he introduced himself and they said, can I take your picture? And I said, well, okay. Hmm. And he said, I keep a book where I take pictures of all of our judges. Wow. And so, I mean, I don't know where that is now. I think that would be something wonderful to have in the library because you'll see photos of a lot of our Airbnb judges as Vern first met them. Oh, gosh. I, we should ask Barb, his wife, his late wife, because uh, Vern, unfortunately, has passed away since uh, that dedication. Um, I'm going to ask Barb next time I, I talk to her because he was a people person. He had so much charisma. He was the life of the party. I remember his 80th birthday party was actually held at the Oregon League Rabbit and Cavey Breeders Association, their annual convention in Newport, Oregon. I got to be there and he was living it up at at 80, an incredible man. I can only imagine. I mean, he had one of those personalities that just filled the room. You you look at him and you'd think, oh, you know, maybe this is a gruff older guy. Um, but I grew up in a barber shop, so I know that they really don't exist. You can get them out of that pretty quickly. But I mean, you didn't have to even have to work with Vern. He would see you and come up with this huge smile and handshake and um, just a wonderful, wonderful ambassador for this hobby. A hundred percent. All right. So I pulled out then the domestic rabbits from back in July, August of 2015. And I went to our president's report, which of course was Josh Humphreys. This is a good one. It's crazy to think about this now, but back in 2015, he writes, in the near future, the issuing of ARBA electronic legs will be fully functional. So far, the response has been outstanding from those who have used it during the testing process. It's hard to believe that legs at one time were only in paper, printed on a, you know, mostly printed on, you know, the printer of a, of a secretary, but today they're pretty much all virtual. Do you remember your first legs that you received virtually or an email? I don't remember those offhand, but I do remember um, when secretaries had started using, of course, online programs and they would email, oh, here's your, you know, exhibitor report. I'll mail you your legs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that was a nice way to put all of that together. And it's it's just so much easier. And it's easier to, you know, if you sell a rabbit to just send that to the new buyer, Um yeah, they're they're easy. I love them and they look great. You know, and they look better in a file on your desktop than they do in a stack in a filing cabinet, which gets covered with dust or totally disregarded and you lose it. So much easier to keep a digital leg than it is to keep one that's printed. Uh, you'll love this one. Cheryl Angling, the standards committee chair at that time. <laughs> you're, you are going to love this because I know that your inbox gets these too. Uh, she writes in her report, she gets some Q and A's uh, and she, she writes those and she says the question from um, an ARB member that wrote to Cheryl Angling, the standards chair, she says, my bunny is a tricolored agouti lion head. Is he showable? And she writes back uh, in her report answer. 
while he's as cute as a button, unfortunately, he is not showable for the following reasons. Your breed does not allow the broken pattern variety in lion heads. Tricolored animals fall under the broken patterns for all breeds and must specify to be either black or blue with orange, chocolate or lilac with fawn. And anyone studying for a registrar or a judge test, by the way, needs to know that. So don't forget about which colors actually are associated with either orange or fawn in the tri-pattern, in the recognized varieties, that is. And then lastly, she says black and agouti are not considered an acceptable <laughs> tri-pattern color because, of course, they need to be in self-varieties. And the last thing I'm going to read from this DR back in uh, July, August of 2015 it was an article by Brian Caudell, legendary uh, Jersey Willie breeder, and he says, making sense of the Jersey Willie standard changes. So it was a kind of a controversial article because there was some 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 disagreement amongst Jersey Willie breeders about where the breed was going to go, whether they were going to you know go for more of a high headset or you know, continue on with kind of some um, some ambiguities within the standard. And I'm I'm bringing this up because there's an amazing profile shot in this article of a Jersey Woolly, a New Zealand, and a Netherland Dwarf. And this was really an avant-garde kind of pictorial view of the standard that that you were just behind, the 2021 ARBA standard, which has now a new profile, which is kind of that high headset or high mount breed uh, character, which the Jersey Woolies certainly have. And uh, I'll read a little glimpse of this article. It says, because a Jersey Woolly is covered in wool, the breed can be can visually appear as though it has almost a level top line, like an Evelyn Dwarf or Hollenop. One must put one's hands on the woolly to judge its type properly. One should immediately notice the rise. It is a slight, but it's there. The top line doesn't come out of the shoulder level as it does in a Holland or Dwarf. The head is set high on the shoulder that is deep enough for the animal to sustain the headset without assistance. So a really cool um, glimpse at where we're at and where a lot of that uh, movement came from was, was I would, I would equate Jersey Woolies and Fuzzy Lops because they had some controversial wording in their standards dating back to when the breeds were accepted at the ARBA. So really cool stuff. That's all I've got from 2015. Anything more to add to that uh, standards column, by the way? Um, well, I, I haven't gotten that many questions about um, interesting varieties and whether or not they're showable. I think a lot of those things tend to go to Facebook groups now. Um, but I will say that one of the questions that I have received most frequently since we published this new standard is about the classification of breeds because we did remove the lists of breeds from under the type profiles. That has been very confusing to a lot of people. And the answer that I've given everyone is that we are no longer assigning breeds to categories. We're not trying to find a place for each breed to go because there are some that are very different and don't really quite fit. The silver is one that comes to mind. Um, so what I've been telling people is that you know that a breed is part of a particular, you know, has a particular type profile or is maybe part of that group if their breed standard indicates that. So that's where that information is. And all of those rabbits um, that we talk about having a high head mount that is mentioned in all of their breed standards in the body type section, the head section. Um, so that's everything in the front of that standard is reference material to aid people in understanding the breed standards. So when your breed standard talks about a, you know, mandolin or semi-arch top line, you can go to the front of the standard and see what that looks like and learn a little bit more about that particular trait. Same with high head mount or anything else. So there are some that kind of defy grouping. 
And, you know, that's fine. I've seen several questions and some actually rather heated discussions about which group does a dwarf papillon fits into. And um, while it does actually mention the term full arch in the breed standard, they have some characteristics that are different from some of our other full arch breeds. So I, I realize that people like that categorization as it gives them a little bit of a starting point to understanding the breed. But really, um, the focus is on learning those breed standards and using what's in the front of that standard as reference material. I love that response. And one of my favorite showmanship questions to ask kids or is, you know, what body type does your breed have? In more advanced levels of showmanship, I'll ask, what body type does a different breed have? And anymore, you can't just say like, oh, well, uh, you know, English Lop has semi-arch body type. I think the, the well, you could, but you would have to back it up with with details from within that standard, which, as you just said, describes in the English Lop standard or whatever breed it is, how that body is designed and how different that description is compared to, say, a Netherland dwarf or a New Zealand. So I think that that question becomes a lot harder to showmanship kids. And if you're studying for a showmanship and getting ready for it and mastering your routine for the upcoming convention or your county fair or state fair, think about that. You can say like, okay, in the forward of the standard, it's not defined that English lops have semi-arch body type. But when I look at their standard and read their body description, this clearly signifies what the type profile reads in the forward of the standard when it comes to that body style. So cool stuff. Yeah. And, you know, there are some vast differences even between animals that fit into those type profiles. Um, and type is not just, you know, profile and top line. There are a lot of things that go into that head, bone, all of the, you know, aspects of the animal's structure. So we have animals like Flemish giants, which are to have very, very heavy, massive bone. Um, you don't want that in an English lop or an American, you know, in the full arch, you know, group or the rabbits that are described as full arch. You have some of those rabbits that are running breeds that call for a long body. The tans call for a shorter body. Um, so it's just, it's pieces and parts. And, you know, here's things they have in common. Here's things they don't. And that's what makes all of our breeds unique. Yes. And that's why the ARBS standards perfection to this day still adheres to uniqueness when new breeds are presented to your committee for their acceptance into the standard. They have to be different than everything else. And there are so many unique, unique qualities to each of our breeds, which separate them. Um, it, just like, I love the full arch uh, analogy that you, you just used, because as you said, you know, there are some that are running, there are some that are opposed, there are some that are short, there are some that are long. And that when you get into the evaluation aspect, there's a reason why some of those breeds are what we call running breeds, you know, and they're evaluated completely on the move. You know, the handling of the rabbit is only done for the, you know, the, the, the basic general DQ check that we do for all breeds. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got everything in that group from a heavy bone checker giant, which is evaluated on the run to a very small, fine boned Britannia petite, which is evaluated while being posed. The, you know, similar traits there being the shape of the top line is somewhat similar. The rabbits are to have long limbs. They are to show daylight um, when evaluated, but there are, you know, very significant differences. I don't know about you, but I've got Britannia petites in my barn. Do you know what they would do on the run? Uh, they just fly catapult off the table there, there's no running about them so <laughs> there's a reason why there's some control variable in that in that standard all right well speaking of Britannia petites i think it's time to roll into the interview uh section of this podcast and it happens to be a Britannia petite or as you're going to describe 
uh, shortly and you're asked. All right, Bryony. So who is it today? Today, we are going to talk to Phil Gould from the UK. For our 25th episode, we decided to reach back to some of the roots of our rabbit showing um, method and passion, which is in Europe. Um, Phil raises primarily what he calls poles. This breed is called the Polish in the UK. It is the same breed that we call the Britannia Petite in the U.S. So that's just um, a word of advice to our listeners as you listen to this. The rabbits that we're talking about are what we call a Britannia Petite, even though we're both going to call these poles in our interview. Hello, Phil. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from the U.K. Thank you very much for having me. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in the rabbit hobby? Right. I was about... Age nine, I've always been interested in livestock. Uh, we had a farm on the corner of our lane where I lived, so I was always at the farm. It's like my second home. So I've always been interested in, and we've always had rabbits because I'm one of ten children. I've got nine brothers and sisters. So we always had livestock, chickens and rabbits and things, and it just generally from there, really. And uh, a chap who lived down the lane at the other end, introduced me to the BRC and gave me some books. And then I started reading them books and uh, the lad next door called Alan, he was interested as well. So we, we showed, we went to our first show, we were about nine years old, I think. And we took crossbred rabbits and thought they were the world. And of course, within a week, people had helped us with the proper stuff and uh, we got the bug and... That's it. We've ever been in it ever since. Well, that sounds a lot like um, many stories here from breeders in the U.S. And did you start with Poles or what was the first breed that you showed? No, I started with Dutch. Uh, black and blue Dutch I started with and a, a chap called Terry Lyons. Uh, a good exhibitor, but didn't drive. So he couldn't go to as many shows he would, should have done. He had some good rabbits. But because I didn't drive then either, so I had to get on my bike and go and see Terry. And he was the person who influenced me the most on cleanliness. Because when I went to his place, it was immaculate. He was a joiner by trade in the pits. And the place was immaculate. It was all painted out with all nice numbers on every pet. It was beautiful. And that's where I got the bug from because I am fanatic about cleanliness. It's like a doctor's surgery, my place is. There's no dust, no mess. Everything is painted white. Everything has to be white. Everything has to be in its place. The, the, uh, the, the bowls are pink. The cold olders are pink because that helps. When you go into the hot place, shed, the eyes look fantastic because everything is pink or white and it counteracts the red eye of the pole. So, yeah. And then I had Dutch, and then after that, I went into silvers, silver greys. And then I came in partnership with a, a lad called Alan Wright, who lived next door to me. And we, we had all three colours then, fawns, browns, and greys. But greys was mine, and Alan looked after the other two. And we were very successful with silvers. And then in 1995, I started with poles. And they were just going to be a second breed. But within six months, the silvers had gone and the poles had taken over. 
So that's when I started with poles. So what was it about them that really captured your interest? The reason I went into poles, one simply thing, I want to win. With silvers, you, I got to the fancy, I, I won, and I got to the last four rabbits, and the opposite judge would just say, not enough silvering on, or too much silvering. And you can't argue with that. It doesn't say that in the standard. It says evenness of silvering. But as soon as he says that, you come second. So I started with polls because I wanted to be on the front page of our magazine, our rabbit magazine called Fur and Feather. So within one year, I'd been on the front page twice with my polls. I'd won two championship shows. If you win championship shows in this country, you generally go on the front page. There's not many of them, but they're normally guaranteed front cover of the page. And I was on the front cover twice in one year. And I just they were just the right rabbit for me. They're small. They don't take a lot of looking after. They, they do nip you a little bit. But, yeah, they're great. They are. They're a neat breed, and they're definitely a, a very striking breed on the show table. Yes. Um, so you talked a little bit about your setup for your rabbits, and we know that there are some differences in rabbit keeping between the U.S. and the U.K. Can you tell us a little bit about your setup? How many rabbits do you have? What kind of equipment and cages do you have and yeah. how you maintain that? Uh, my rabbits are in a double garage. It's very heavily insulated to keep it cool in the winter, in the summer, and warmer in the winter. Because of breeding, I'd only breed when the rabbits are fit. So when they're molting right now, we don't not breed. We will not start breeding now till Mar uh, October, November. And then we'll go on from then right into uh, till June. So I have 63 hutches. They're all in blocks with solid floors. The breeding does are on straw with shavings underneath and then barley straw on top. And all the show rabbits will be on two inches of white shavings. All the rabbits on white shavings will be cleaned out twice a day, corners only, twice a day. All the ones on straw will be cleaned out twice a week. Take the corners out, and put some clean shavings in, and if they need straw, give them some straw. They're all on water bottles. We don't have automatic feed as much over here. They're all on water bottles. Uh, and we feed uh, mixed rabbit food, what we make ourselves. We buy in all the individual ingredients and then we mix it up. And uh, I feed that. And I think that's the difference why my rabbits are super fit, because of the difference I, I feed. I feed so many different things. Yeah. And... I put hay in tubes for them to nibble at because you want to keep them clean. It's so essential over here that they have to be clean. Yeah. So does everyone kind of have their own special mix of feed? No. A lot of people will just feed pellets. Uh, one or two have mixed rabbit food and stuff, but, yeah, everyone to their own. But it just works for me. I wouldn't like to think that I've got to eat pellets every day of the year. That's how I look at it. So I feed peanuts, cornflakes, 
rock, whole oats, pellets, various different things, uh, sunflower seeds, just to get the best out of them. Because they're a very active rabbit as a pole, you'll never get it too fat. They always seem to be ideal weight for me is two pound five ounces. I think it's just just perfect that is for the rabbit. The disqualification weight is two and a half pounds, but I like my rabbits around the two point five pounds. And why is that? Because I just think they've just got the right shape. They're solid. They're not got flappy tummies, and uh, they're just nicely tucked underneath, so you can see the daylight underneath their front legs and the tummy. You don't want to mite pot pigs, in my opinion. You want them so you can see daylight underneath. And which colours do you have of poles? Only whites. Only whites, because whites are the strongest classes over here. Whites generally win most most pole shows. I'm not saying all pole shows, but generally whites take the beating because they'll just have a sharper coat normally than, than a coloured. And about how many um, herd bucks and brood does do you keep at any one time? Uh, I've kept more this time. I've kept 18 breeding does and I had 15 breeding books. But those books will show as well. You know, I don't just have special books just for stud books. The Normally, in a normal times, the show rabbits are the breeding books. But I do generally use lots of books because it keeps the blood, blood uh, pool bigger and not get interbred. So I don't have to go window shopping and buying stock in because I've, I've used lots of books and it keeps that better. I think that's a good philosophy. Um, so you have a big show coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we've got a big show on the uh, 3rd and 4th of September, and it's our 125 years anniversary show of the National Polish Rabbit Club. That is on the Saturday, and then on the Sunday is our Young Stock Show. And when you think about it, we haven't had a show for over 18 months as, an, as a National Polish Club. So this is very exciting, and the entries have been exceptionally good because there's always you know, uh, doubt when you run these shows, but we've had an entry of 140 poles and 126 on the Sunday. So that is really, really good. So, yes, very excited to say the least. And can you tell us what a young stock show is? Because I think the, the divisions are a little bit different there than they are in the U.S. Yeah. A, young, a young stock show is a rabbit under five months old. Now, as a Polish national club, we have two ages. We have under 14 weeks and under five months. And it is our governing body, the BRC, we're not allowed to show a rabbit under 12 months, 12 weeks old. So we have a classes classification for under 14 weeks and under five months. And then on the same day, we'll have a support show for adults. So people can bring adults in if they want to as well. But it's generally just for the Young Stock Show is the Sunday. 
That's interesting. We do a minimum weight, as you probably know, um, for juniors as opposed to a minimum age. Um, but yeah, I think it's the same philosophy to keep the animals at home until they're, you know, old enough and healthy enough to travel and compete. Yes. yes. Because with a pole, it's not, you haven't got to rush it. Because with a pole, it's only going to get better with age. Where, where a tan has got limited time to show. Where a pole isn't. And that's the good thing about a pole. If you breed a good pole, you could be showing it for a couple of years or so at a high level. So that's another reason I like poles. So you've done very well with your poles at a high level. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we have been lucky to, and over the many, over years, we've had poles now for 25 years. We're in our 26th year. We've won every major show in the UK including London Championship in 2010. That's a five-star show. And Bradford Championship show in 2015. And to me, and to most exhibitors over here, they are the top of the tree. And Bradford is often talked about our crufts in the rabbit world. Everybody who shows rabbits in the UK is their dream is to win Bradford or just to get on brick to row is exceptionally well. So, yeah, I've been very lucky. That I have. So I know that for our American listeners, um, Bradford is kind of synonymous with our ARBA convention, correct? That's, that's the big show every year. Yes, that's right. Both of them two shows are annually. One's in October and then Bradford is in January, normally third or fourth weekend in January. But that is the one that most people would like to win. It carries the most prestige. And at Bradford, you have the regular show and then you have the Young Stock show, is that correct? Yes. In the recent years, we have two shows now, Adult Stock Show, ad- Adult Show, that's five stars, and uh, an under five show. What's a three star show? They they run separately, but there's two shows, and that encourages people to bring more rabbits and you know have a chance of winning two shows. So those are entirely separate shows. With they're each best in show. Is that correct? Yes. 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 Yeah. And- because we. You've made history with that, haven't you? Yes, I made history in 2015 with my partners because I show as Fortune Stud. The reason we were called Fortune Stud is because uh, there's four of us and we should be in tune with each other. So Christine, who's one of my partners, uh, Kev's wife, thought of the name and we all agreed it was a good idea. So we called Fortune Stud. And in 2015, we were lucky enough to win both best in shows. And that has not been done since or before then yet. So that was a very special weekend. And we won. We have the two shows go on hand in hand. But on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, the best in show 
and that will be four rabbits, will be judged for for the under five show. And then at quarter to four, half past three, quarter to four, on the Sunday afternoon, the five star show, the adult show is judged. Four rabbits again will be on stage and one judge will decide the best in show. And we were lucky enough to win both shows over the weekend. And it was very emotional, to say the least, because I've wanted to judge Win Bradford for many, many years. I went there in 1973 from, on a school trip. Uh, we had a rabbit club at our school in them days, and we went on a coach, a mini minibus. And uh, I saw a chap called Bert Clipson on stage on the Sunday afternoon, and the mic in his hand, thanking everyone, who, and he went best in show. And I turned to my dear friend, Alan Wright, and said, I want some of that, but I didn't realise it was going to take me a lifetime to do that. But it was worth every little bit. And if you could just bottle that feeling you felt that day for all those bad days, it'd be great. But yeah, at least I've done it, so the pressure's off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so how many do you have entered for the National Polish Show coming up? I've entered 19. I have never, ever entered so many rabbits. I think when we showed at the Centini Show in the Silvers with Alan, I think we showed 10 rabbits between us. But this time I've got 19 whites going in. Because there's six classes. There's an under 14 week doe, under five month doe, adult doe. Adult book, under, four, under five book, and under 14 week book. So you've got six classes you could possibly win. And then them six classes will decide who wins best in show. So in my motto is, if you're in every class, you can win every class. If you're not in it, you can't win it. So that's why we've got 19 in. And we've had an exceptionally good breeding season. In fact, the last two seasons have been exceptionally good. And I put that down to not showing because we're not traveling every weekend showing the rabbits. So they're in the sheds all the time. And I think that was one of the reasons we've had such a good breeding season in the last two seasons. I yeah, a lot wrong. of breeders here have talked about that, too, that, you know, the lack of shows kind of gave them some freedom from being on schedule or breeding, um, kind of gave them some freedom to, you know, maybe do a little experimenting or, you know, just not be bound to the show schedule and spend more time just concentrating on breeding. Yes, yes. Because showing does take a lot of time up and everyone has only got so much time to do these hobbies. So what yeah. have you been doing to prepare your rabbits for this show? What have I been? Well, uh, just keeping them clean and trying to encourage them, give them treats to try and encourage them to get out their molt and to keep to be super fit because it's the rabbit what wins will be the rabbit what catches the eye. And when I say that is it's got to be fit and, you know, and stand out of a class because the competition is very hard. In red-eyed white poles, it's one of the hardest competitions to win. 
because they're all the exhibitors are very competitive, very competitive against each other. So I know I've got to do everything possible to get those rabbits the best I can look look at them. So yeah, I clean them out, I feed them, I don't change anything. I go to get the grass from the same fields, I use the same hay and the same corn. I don't change anything now because I might upset them and I don't want to upset anything now. So I just keep it ticking over and hopefully we will be successful on the weekend. And do you um, have them out and work with them daily? or um... Every day. Every day. I, I have my rabbits out every day. Not the breeding rabbits, but every show rabbit. So then 19 rabbits are handled every day. And I run my hands through them. I, I've got a stool in the shed and I sit on this and they're on a white cloth. And I sit them up, left-handed, right-handed and both hands and groom them and I run my thumb underneath their tummy to tighten their tummy up. And just a matter of grooming them and handling them and uh, I have the telly on in the shed because we need to keep them used to noise because a pole is a showman and if it doesn't sit, Yeah, that sitting is um, an important part of looking at the rabbit at its very best. Yes. But I used to, in the, I've moved recently, and in the other shed I was in, I had a mirror, and I found... Uh, and look at both sides at the same time, if you know what I mean. If I put the the mirror, uh, the rabbit in front of the mirror, I could see both sides of the rabbit at the same time. So that was very helpful, in my opinion. So there's something we need to get back in the, in this new shed we're in now, is the mirror, because I think that was very useful. Yeah, that would be. Um, so are there particular classes that tend to be more likely to win best of breed or best in show or, um, how does that work? Which, are, which classes are the ones that everyone's watching? Uh, the red eyed white book. That's the ultimate class. That is, you know, generally that's where the winners come from. But I personally think the winners will come from the under five months or the under 14 weeks at the weekend coming because they will be the fittest rabbits. My adults aren't quite there yet. So I tend to think that everyone will be the same as me. And I think the youngsters where the, the best in show will come from. Person, that's only my opinion, but that's where I think they'll come from. But normally it's the, it's the book classes uh, are the hardest ones to win. And do they yeah. tend to have uh, bigger entry numbers in the doe classes? Yes, yes. And the difference is from over here is every rabbit is brought out onto the table and put in a line with stewards holding the rabbit so we can compete the, the rabbit against each other as they're in a line of, uh, on the table. So we will never have more than nine rabbits out on the table so, and we always go down to seven cards. So there's always seven and then there's two floating. 
So if you're around the bottom end, you'll be going off and another rabbit comes on. And then he compares them to them seven rabbits. And if it's good enough, it's placed. And if it's not, it goes back and another one comes on until you've gone through the whole class. So sometimes, like at Bradford, when there's 40-odd red-eyed white books, that class could take two hours to judge. So it's a long time for those little white rabbits to be out on that table in that, in that class. But that's how it's done over here. So tell us a little bit about the system with stewards, because um, at our shows, at most shows, we take our own rabbits to table. We set them on the table. We bring them off. Sometimes at our national shows, there are runners who will take rabbits back and forth, but they're still just sitting on a coop. Um, Can you steward your own rabbits or how does someone get to become a steward at a rabbit show? Yes, you can steward your own rabbits in this country. Uh, As long as you do not openly suggest this rabbit's yours in front of the judge, uh, you can handle your own rabbits. You fetch a rabbit out your pens. The book steward is the person next to the judge. In my opinion, has got the hardest job because she or he will call the numbers of the class and then stewards or owners will go and fetch them rabbits and then place them onto the table and then the book steward will give everyone an ear tag number. Now, this is a little sticky label with a number on it, and that number will relate to the rabbit's pen number, and that is put on the bottom of the tail. And it just sticks on. It doesn't cause any problems, and you just take it off at the end of the day, and that that number will stop on that rabbit until until it's time to go home. And then it's up to the judge then to, to judge the rabbits. So that number um, is kind of like the coop numbers maybe that we use at some of our large shows. Um, is that meant to just have kind of an anonymous number to use so the band number can't be known to the judge? Yes, it's just a ring number, but they've all got ring numbers on their legs. Mm-hmm. And if you're lucky enough to win the class, the judge will read that ring number and that will go towards a champion. If you're lucky enough to have that ring red, uh, yeah, only the winners are red. The others go back to the pen. But he'll comment on the top three rabbits and then comments will one day end up in the fur and feather under that show you, you attended. So you can, when you get the fur and feather, you can see what the judge says. Because generally, they don't say anything about judging. They just judge the rabbits and then write down a comment on a piece of paper, and that one day will go in the fur and feather, and you'll be able to read your comments in the mag- in the magazine. As will everyone else, and hopefully learn something from that. Yes, yes. And if you've got any inquiries, you can always, after the show is judged, uh, go and see the judge and say, you know, what did you think of this rabbit or whatever, and he will tell you what he thought of it in his honest opinion. Because at the end of the day, you you're just paying for that one person's opinion. Whether I win or lose, I'll still take my rabbit's own because it's my opinion is is the most important one. I'm only paying for someone's opinion on the day of a show. So, you know, sometimes they don't agree with me, sometimes they do. 
I think a lot of our breeders here would um, would say the same thing that that it's an opinion, but it's one day. It's one day and one impression of the animal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, it's not a life changing thing. It's you know, it's just one opinion. That's all. So, do you have any particular uh, polls that you're excited about this weekend? Yes, I am. Normally, when we show polls, I only show in the book classes. So all my eggs are in one basket, the red-eyed white book. But this time, I am so excited that we have bred some super does. Normally, if I breed one doe, I've been exceptionally well. But this time, we have bred one or two really nice-looking females, and under 14 weeks and under fives and adults. So that's where it will surprise one or two people because normally, like I said, we only show red-eyed white books. So I'm very excited that we're in all six classes. And four years ago when we decided to have this show, I said to myself, the aim is is to be in every class. And we're lucky enough, uh, we are. Well, it sounds like that part of the goal is achieved. Um, are there particular traits that make the bucks so much more competitive than the does? And if so, what are those? Uh, they normally have broader heads. And and the, with doses, sometimes they can go chesty. When I mean chesty, they go wide chesty or they blow up and they don't look as attractive in there. But generally, it's the, the head shape of the book class makes them win and like i said there could be three times as many books as there is does and uh, yeah if you get in the top seven of any of those classes next weekend you've done exceptionally well because all the big names of our breed will be there so top seven exceptionally well well, that's exciting. Yeah. So you have been over to the U.S. and attended a show here. Is that correct? Yes, I did. I, I did. Some, I was lucky enough to judge a show for David at uh, the Easter show. So what was your um, impression of the American show system and judging and all of that? Well, the biggest difference I saw was youth, age. In the UK, it's a grey-haired hobby, <laughs> I would say. In the US, there was a lot of younger people, and that was a big surprise to me. Uh, and the numbers people show was another surprise to me. You know, we all only – over here, people will show four rabbits maybe, five you know, something like that. Not not the amount I saw being shown in the US. The thing I did like about how excited people were just to get best of breed and they wanted a photograph with the judge. I thought that was really nice and, and encourages people because we can't all win best in shows. So, you know, to get best of breed, it is good and consistently. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is. Um, so, yeah, the ARBA does have a very robust youth program. And actually, um, that's a major kind of, um, I guess, gateway to the rabbit hobby is 4-H, FFA, youth coming in. And a lot of times it's their parents that stay with rabbits, not even the kids themselves. But that's kind of one of our major um, funnels into the rabbit hobby. Um, so how is that different in the UK? How do people kind of start with rabbits and get interested with rabbits? I would say it generally is through uh, their children. You know, the parents showed rabbits and the children show rabbits. Where we fail, and we have failed, is holding on to those children when they become seniors. They seem to dwindle. And that's a shame, really. Some come back when they've had the families and got married and had children and they'll come back into the rabbit world. But we do lose a lot and don't come back. And these are people from whose, you know, top exhibitors' children showed rabbits, but we just don't seem to hold on to them as much as we'd like and keep them in our hobby. And times are changing over here about things, you know, hobbies and things like that. So, yeah. I think we've got some tough times ahead in our hobby in this country. That actually sounds a little similar to, you know, what we go through here. And I know that there's a lot of people from my generation that are only able to keep rabbits because, you know, we're able to house them at our parents' house. Um, A lot of cities have come along and said, oh, you can't have, you know, X number of animals on your property in town. So there's a lot more regulations than maybe there were 20 or 30 years ago. And getting a place with land is, is a lot more expensive here. Um, so yeah. I know my rabbits are still at my parents' house. We're, we're working on getting out of town so I can have my own barn. But that's, that's why a lot of us are able to stay in the hobby. Yeah, yeah. I think the biggest problem over here is getting rid of the waste. I think... A lot of people, I'm lucky enough, I can take mine to the farm. But a lot of people do struggle of getting rid of the waste. You know, the cleaning out bits. And that does become a problem. That's interesting. And do those people mostly live in town? Yes, yes, in towns. And the, and the council won't take it in their wheelie bins. So they have to find a different way of getting rid of it and, and it can become a problem or expensive as well if they have to hire a skip and have it removed that way. And that's definitely something what's you know has changed in the last few years. So um, obviously, you know, with your winnings, poles are a very competitive breed for best in show in the UK. What are some other breeds that tend to be um, very competitive on that best in show table? Uh, Black Rex. Ermines, Tans, Dutch, Dwarfs, uh, that's, you know, roughly them sort of, and fur rabbits, New Zealand's, uh, them sort of rabbits, yeah. But some rabbits don't seem to get there somehow. Not because they're not high quality, but they're just harder to breed like harlequins and magpies, English, you know, them sort of rabbit, them sort of breeds are harder to win best in shows over here. 
than having Poles or Dutch or Dwarfs. Because we have four sections over here. We have the Fancy, Fur, Rex and Lops. And they're judged separately. So that's why we always have four rabbits that go towards best in show. So that would be kind of like our group winners at convention. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But... And one big difference, another difference I noticed was all your judges over there are qualified to judge all 50 breeds. They have to be. Where here in the UK, we have a lot of judges who just want to judge one breed, their own breed, they, they, they breed like the English or the Dutch. There's a lot of those sort of people and the Netherlands Dwarves. They just want to breed and judge their own breed. They're not interested in judging other breeds. And that's something, you know, we should be looking at, really, because we need to encourage judges to have a better, broader mind so there would be better judges. Yeah, we do have specialty judges. I think we maybe have three or four that are active right now. Um, but, but yeah, most people go for an all-breed judge's license because here, at least, if you're a specialty judge, you know, you may judge a specialty show at an all-breed show you're attending. You may judge at a national show, but you're not going to get to go around the country and judge shows like an all-breed no. judge will. No. And another difference is most of the judges do not get paid in the UK to judge. Really? Yeah. They might get some petrol money, but there will be no, no uh, hotel bills. Or anything like that. They'll get a dinner and a cup of tea through the day and looked after in that respect, but they were not getting paid as such. Interesting. No yeah. There's just no funds for that to be paid. So I think the going rate is 20p a mile is what you can ask for. Uh, some of the old cultural shows will pay above the odds. They might put you in hotels, but in generally, no. And like Bradford and London, no one gets paid because it's an honour to judge. And like stock shows, judging national polls or Dutch or anything else, it's like an in rule. You don't get paid for judging stock shows, not even petrol money, because it's an honour to judge those shows. And you've been you know, voted to judge those shows. So it's an honour to judge those. Wow. You might get a gift. You might get a gift or something at the end of the day, but or, or a plaque to remind you you judged best in show at Bradford or best fancy at Bradford or whatever, but you won't get paid. Just do it for the, you know, for the prestige. Yeah, that is interesting and, and very different. Um yeah. Our ARBA convention actually pays on a flat fee. Unlike most shows, you get um, 15% of the entry fee for every animal you judge. But then some breed clubs will give you an extra fee or, you know, a gift. You're often invited to the breed club banquet for dinner. Um, so that that's interesting. Yeah. What what I would like one day is to be to judge polls in America, a national poll show. I know it's never going to happen, but I would love to judge polls in America. You know, that would be awesome. 
I'm sure we could make it happen. We could get your registrar's license knocked out in a couple weekends and <laughs> we could yeah. get, you'd just only a, have to I'm work with three judges. Yeah, just to judge polls. That's what I'd love to judge, just polls at a national level, you know, to see what the difference is and, you know, the quality throughout. Yeah. Well, again, you know, you could get a specialty license here. It's only three shows. You could knock that out in a couple weekends in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. It's not it impossible. Was, the thing is, in the U.S., it's the distance between shows. Yeah. See, most shows here you can drive to easily in a day. You know, and that's that's another big difference, isn't it? You know, the fast distance between shows in the States is, is massive compared to here. Yes. Most of our shows we go to uh, are two hours driving one way. So we are lucky in that respect. We can go there and back in a day. Yeah. Uh, ours, as you know, we're a little more spaced out. We kind of tend yeah. to consider, I don't know, maybe four or five hours to be a relatively close drive, but sometimes we'll just take off for, you know, halfway across the country just to do it sometimes. I know. I hear stories when people travel 30 hours. <laughs> I just have to take my hat off to those people because <laughs> I couldn't imagine driving 30 hours. My <laughs> wife would think I'm insane. She would. <laughs> well, she I'm insane anyway, but yeah. 30 hours, wow, you know, unbelievable. I mean, non-rabbit people kind of think kind of think we're nuts, too. I live in Kansas, which is right in the middle of the United States. So my long drives, you know, we talked about Reno a little bit earlier. Um, that's about a 22-hour drive for me. So I will drive one long, torturous day um, and then stay at a hotel, get up, and drive another, you know, 8, 10 hours the next day, depending on how far I got the night before. And yeah, people think I'm crazy. Non-rabbit people think I'm crazy for doing yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could imagine <laughs> because we go to Scotland. That's our furthest show, and that is the end of July, uh, October. And me and my daughter will share the driving, and we'll go there and back in a day. Uh, we have gone on a Friday night before, but we just—it's so much traffic, and it takes forever to get there. We find it's best to get up early on the Saturday morning, drive all the way to Scotland, and then show the rabbits, and then split the driving again on the way back. And uh, we're normally back for about half past eight at night. We leave around four o'clock in the morning, and we'll be back half eight, nine o'clock. And that's one long day. And the good thing about Scotland is the clocks go back on the Saturday night. So we get an extra hour in bed. So that just works right, really. We've got an extra hour to recover, ready for the next day. Yeah, I like that. But that is our furthest show we go to. It's over, uh, I would say, it's uh, about 225 miles one way, or something like that. So it is a long day, and my wife thinks I'm mental. <laughs> but we enjoy it and it's you know we keep each other company talking to each other all the way there and on the way back and as and the exhibitors are very good you know you'll know there'll be some good rabbits in scotland at the champ you know their championship show so that makes it worthwhile oh, and yeah 
we have a national poll show there normally as well. So you've got two cracks at the cherry, if you if you know what I mean. So, you, yeah, you can win two shows. So, yeah. And my daughter's judging up there this time in Scotland. She, she'll be judging the uh, British Mini. Uh, so, yeah, we'll definitely be going. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah. I don't look forward to the journey. <laughs> but when I'm there, I'm all right. It's just the thought of all that way, but never mind. <laughs> well, I, um, I've i learned that my limit for driving in a day is about a 1,000 miles, which is double what a long-haul trucker is allowed to do in a day. Jesus. I don't yeah. moan. I never moan about distances anymore since I've, you know, met Josh and Maddie and Randy <laughs> and these because, you know, our little bit is nothing, you know, so I don't mention, I don't worry about distance anymore or moan about it to people because you know you like just well you're a different league in that respect. So have you had a chance to handle polls in the U.S.? Yes, I was lucky enough to judge some. Uh, some people did enter under me of different colours and whites, and yeah, I really enjoyed it. They're not being stewarded. They're in, in holding pens. That was strange. Where normally in the UK, they're all being hauled by stewards. So I can stand back and I can admire the rabbits in front of me. And often, if you stand back, the winner will stand out itself, will pick itself generally. Without even touching it, you'll, a rabbit will catch your eye. And generally, that will be the winner. So that was that was different, and and we have uh, a two foot, three foot table to judge on, wide, and we had to have, share that with the holding pens. So that I found that's you know strange as well, and I couldn't read some of the tattoos in the rear. So lucky enough, Maddie did the books for me that day, and she could just read them just like that. So that was a great help because I think I'd still be struggling now on some of the letters and the, and the tattoos. Again, we don't tattoo over here. So that was another, you know, different thing. But the enthusiastic and our people were so, you know, enthusiastic was definitely a, a big difference as well. Yeah, it was. I know yeah. it must be, you know, three years this April coming. But, yeah, it's still fond memories, definitely. Yeah. Um, we we kind of get used to reading kind of not quite legible tattoos. You know, we'll look at one and say, uh, it looks like three digits with an S in it. Um, so do you think the standards between the UK and the US for the poll is fairly similar or are there some differences? No, very similar. That's one of the breeds is very similar to us. Uh, is the poll so that's why when uh, we we invite US judges over here to judge at Bradford in the international stakes polls generally do well because they can relate to those as a breed from over there as well as over here so generally we do well with polls under the American judges in uh, at Bradford are there some breeds where the the outcome is a little bit different uh, or widely different under the American judges? Uh, Angoras uh, is one of those. Uh, 
they don't seem to like our Angora so much as they do in America. Uh, yeah, size-wise, I think, and different things, but yeah. But generally, no, they, you know, yeah, but poles, hares, them sort of rabbits, they, they're very similar to this, the American standard. Yeah, it seems to be more of the full arch breeds. I know that there's been some importation of tans from the UK, um, as well as poles and hares too. And some breeds like Dutch, which I raise, they're quite different. Yes. Yes. We were lucky enough to go to a, a Dutch breeder while we were over there. David took us to a, I can't remember what the lady's name is, so I apologize for that. But we, I was well impressed with the setup and everything and how knowledgeable she was. And yeah. And just the vast numbers, uh, you know, at your Dutch shows, unbelievable. Yeah, we have at a large national Dutch show with Youth and Open combined, we will normally have, you know, a thousand to maybe even a hundred rabbits. Yeah, yeah. I think that day she was going was 700. There was that day. She was going the following weekend after we saw her. And uh, yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. One thing I do want to see is 26,000 rabbits in one show all. <laughs> you know, I want to come to a convention and see that amount of rabbits because the biggest amount over here would be about 1,900. So to see thousands of rabbits would be, well, mind-boggling. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, and we may hit that at Louisville, Kentucky this year. I don't know. That's That holds the record in 2008, I believe, for the largest number of animals to cross the table. The record entries was in Indianapolis in 2005. Um, but with, you know, us taking a year off of convention, although some areas, you know, people may still be restricted from entering because of RHD, um, I think we could see kind of record numbers as people, you know, missed it last year and they're not going to miss it again. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, some of our shows, once we get moving on some of the shows, I think the entries will be good because people just want to get out again and enjoy their hobby. Yeah, it's it's a big part of getting back to normal after the past year yeah. and a half. Yes. And, you know, talking to people in the same interests as you as well, you know, you miss all that. And uh, competing, you know, you just, you know, that's why you keep rabbits so you can compete. So you miss all that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So what advice would you have for, you know, someone who is very competitive and wants to start a competitive herd of rabbits? Well, the first thing I would say to someone when starting up in rabbits, ask yourself what you want out of it. Now, do you want to make friendship? Do you want to sit around the table and drink tea? Or do you want to win shows? Because there is a difference. Because if you pick a breed like uh, the Himalayan, a beautiful breed it is, but it's harder to win a best in show with an Himalayan than it is a pole. I'm not saying the standards is different. It's just it is what it is. It's just harder to win. So pick the breed if you want to do some winning, serious winning, pick a breed to do that because some breeds will win more than others. The last three years, 
the Poles have been the number one breed for winning more shows than anyone else. So in some breeds, never even got registered as winning an open show. So that's the question I always say to people. Yeah, I think that's very solid advice. So one last question. This is something that we ask uh, most of our guests. Can you describe your perfect rabbit show to us? Perfect rabbit show. Well, it's got to be Bradford, I'd imagine. Bradford is the ultimate show. As soon as you get there, there's just something about Bradford. The atmosphere on the Friday night all the way through the weekend is just a buzz. It's just the excitement of possibly winning best of breed at Bradford. I think that's the special bit. And it'll be, you know, weeks and days before Bradford. All I think about is Bradford. I live and breathe it because that is the one I want to win. And a a chap called Tony Carnell, who used to show red-eyed white poles, he was lucky enough to win it three times in his lifetime. And not many people could say that. So I've only won it once yet, but I'm trying. You're aiming for a second and third and maybe a fourth. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I would love... Because when you win it the first time... You can't take it all in. It just goes so fast. Walking onto the stage, you know, you get down to those last two people and there's just two rabbits on the table and one of them's yours and one of them's perhaps one of your best friends. And then they announce in second place and then you know you've won because they've announced the Rex or the Fur Rabbit or the Lock and you've won. And that feeling is just unbelievable, especially at Bradford, because you try so hard to win Bradford and you have to have a bit of luck. It's not all down to the rabbit. You've got to have the right judges to go through and you've got to have a bit of luck. But to walk on that stage after you've been announced, you've won best in show at Bradford and meeting up with your partners on the stage and everyone applauding and the cameras are going, oh, it's Unbelievable. I wish everybody could experience that because it's just good. Well, that's definitely the dream and that the anticipation of that keeps a lot of people going on both sides of the ocean. Yeah, it's not about the money. It's nothing comes into it. It's the prestige of winning, you know, best of breed at Bradford. It's not about prize money or whatever. It's all about that prestige and that red card and that, Certificate CC saying best of breed. That's what it's about. If you if you if you want money, you don't go into rabbits because <laughs> there's no one makes money out of rabbits in this country. I would have thought not uh, you know, enough to live on anyway. Definitely not. But we it's a great hobby, definitely. And I've met some really nice friends, lifetime friends as well. Even going back to when I was nine, some of them people I met then, some have passed away, bless them, but some are still friends today. You know, you make friends for life in this hobby. That you do, and that's something that's, you know, the same in the U.S. as well. It's 
you know, it, it's a lifestyle. It becomes part of your life and, you know, people become part of your family. Yeah. And the other thing, the reason Bradford is special and London, but more suburban for Bradford, is sometimes you won't see them people for months on end after Bradford because you don't see them in this, in this, where you go to shows. So it's a lot of catch up as well with old friends at Bradford. And in 2023 will be our 100th anniversary show at Bradford. And that will be a very, very special show because every breed has been invited to have an older stock show at Bradford for the very first time. So that's exciting on its own. So 2023 it is, our 100th anniversary show. Yeah, that will be exciting. And, and I'm sure that a few of us from the U.S. are, you know, maybe going to think about coming over for that as well. I know that we talk about that here and we'd like to go. Yeah, 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 it'll be a, it'll be a great weekend, that will be. That it will. Yeah, thank you for listening to me. <laughs> you are very welcome. Thank you for sharing your perspective on your polls and shows in the UK. I know that, you know, everything you said is going to resonate with our breeders here. We are, you know, it's one hobby, even though we're spread between different countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've all got one thing in common, and that's rabbits. That's the, yeah, that's the, the main thing. That it is. Bryony, excellent interview with Phil Gould from the United Kingdom. I was actually there in 2015 at the Bradford premiere show, which is kind of our our convention equivalent to the BRC members. And when he won Best in Show, and I happened to be there the year before in 2014 when he didn't win. He actually didn't win Best of Breed. And it was not a good moment. <laughs> it was <laughs> a very, very competitive man, as we heard in this interview. And he puts so much effort into what he does and and the presentation and and to you know being the best at his game he's he's an incredible breeder and one that regardless of where you are in the world can uh can really appreciate his drive and, and passion so uh because we're going to continue to dedicate this episode 25 to the britannia petite as we call him in the arba or the pole or polish as they call him in the uk and, and other parts of the world i'm going to take um a minute to read about the breed history from the Amazing book. If you don't have it, guys, you should buy it. You can buy it from the ARB website. It's called Domestic Rabbits and Their Histories, Breeds of the World by the late Bob Whitman. The Britannia Petite, as Bob writes, an elegant name for an elegant little rabbit that hails from Britain. But the breed is nothing more than the Polish breed of England. The first importation of the Polish breed, or the British Pole, took place in 1973 when Flo and Ted Gordon of Oregon also with Wendy and Warren Poca of Canada, joined by Charles Chin of Washington, imported six animals from Tony Cannell's stud located in England. Additional imports were made by breeders in New Mexico from the famous strain of Bert Klimshen while they were being also developed and shown off at the Bradford Show in 1974. During the 1973 ARBA convention, Flo Adams announced that a new name would be chosen for the breed if they were in hopes to be a breed accepted by the ARBA. Because the ARBA already had a Polish, as Brian, you've already pointed out. William Charlin suggested the name Britannia, and Flo said, how about Britannia Petites? So the new breed came to the Americas and was recognized by the ARBA with the name Britannia Petite. 
During one of the presentations at the 1975 ARBA convention in Wisconsin, the late Dick Bernhardt was invited by the Standards Committee chair then, one of your predecessors, Bryony, Al Meyer, to sit on, on the presentation of the Petites. Bernhardt was greatly concerned that the Britannia Petite would be crossed with American Polish and Netherland Dwarfs, which, of course, had been happening with Dwarfs and Polish, American Polish, for some time. Dick Bernhardt would later write in 1978, I was assured by the chairman of the Standards Committee that it was strictly understood that the standard of petites was only going to be granted in the variety of white, and that it was understood also that no effort would be made to later produce petites in all numerous colors, such as the dwarf. Well, no, that standard or statement did not take place. The Petrani petites were given breed status in 1978, which is really funny because... How many varieties do we have now in the Britannia Petite breed? We have a lot more than just ruby-eyed white. In fact, we have black, black otter, blue-eyed white, broken, chestnut agouti, of course, the classic ruby-eyed white, sable martin, and Siamese sable. And this is just a kind of a funny um, take back in time. I was standing with uh, Derek Medlock from England back in 2006 at the, uh, it was at the Fort Worth Convention. And we were watching the third presentation of the broken variety for the Britannia Petite as they were accepted. Okay, everyone hails, everyone's clapping as, as these presentations always go when something goes in the right way. And he looks at me and he's shaking his head and he goes, in all my life, I never would have thought to find broken in a pole. And of course, he did a, a really eloquent British accent. But Derek, at one time, was the standards chair for the BRC, the British Rabbit Council. So, you know, they are very traditional guys over there and and gals. And broken is even to them still today. And any breed is like, that's really, that's really modern. So to think about it in that breed, it just blew his socks off. Yeah. Um, and to everyone who's interested in that, we are expecting to see three presentations of Britannia Petite varieties on display at convention this year. The tortoise group is up for a second showing. The Himalayan group is up for a first showing. And the remainder of the otter group is also up for a first showing. So you'll have to stroll by the coops and take a look at those at convention and then come and visit on presentation day and see the outcome of that. Always a very dedicated group behind those new CODs for varieties of the Britannia Petite. Those are the breeders that are you know veterans here in the U.S. And we've seen so many varieties come in into that breed. And what's kind of remarkable is that, you know, here we are looking at this breed, you know, currently on this episode, back in 1978, they were, they were recognized in, in Ruby Ed White. And, and I, I don't know, there's, there's no breed like them when it comes to culture and watching them accept varieties and then watching their kind of ebbs and flows. And right now they are on a huge high, like they're a very popular breed. They're certainly a, a, a popular best in show rabbit. They're, they're striking and the quality has improved drastically far beyond just ruby and white. I mean, you see examples all the time of, of really good uh, brokens. For, in fact, this past weekend, uh, or two weekends ago, I was judging in Cardiff, uh, California, and I picked a broken Britannia Petite for Best in Show and Youth, and it was an excellent example of the breed. Yeah, there are some really good, um, they call them colored Britannia Petites out there. The first new variety that came in after the ruby-eyed whites was in 1992, the Black Otters. The chestnuts came in in 95, the blacks in 95 as well, the sable martins in 97, the brokens in 2012, the blue-eyed whites in 2013. Those first six varieties were all presented by the same presenter. Wow, that's amazing. And to think that the breed went 14 years as a single variety breed from 78 to 
what'd you say, 94? That's 92. Yeah. 92. So yeah, 14 years as a single variety breed. And then these varieties came in. And as we see in a lot of breeds, when, when new varieties are accepted, I mean, the mini satin is a great example of that. You see uh, just a, a mass amount of energy and new energy uh, associated with the breed and interest by people to get into that breed. So I think those varieties have really helped the breed to take off in this country. Yeah, I think so too. Um, like many breeds where you have one variety that tends to be very well established and kind of dominant, um, that's exciting to others or to some, it's a little off-putting to others. So the, you know, having different varieties gives people um, the ability to maybe make their own niche in the breed or take on something where maybe you don't need as many cages to be competitive in that variety. Um, so it gives everyone a kind of a chance to participate in their own way. And that's all good for the promotion of the breed. Well, the tried and true happens in this barn <laughs> behind me where I'm recording this podcast. It's only white, um, but they, they are a cool breed. And I certainly respect those new varieties and the breeders behind them put a, a good show on. I'm excited to see those otters, you know, and right now, if anyone's studying for their judge or registrar's test, this is recorded again in 2021, uh, where black otter is the only variety of the otter you know, color variety that's acceptable. And they and otter minirex disqualify for lack of dark undercolor on the belly. So it's a really kind of a strict and different take on, on their DQ and allowance. They're a very strict breed when it comes to undercolor on the belly. And to recap, only black otter at this time is acceptable for the Britannia Petite. But it looks like we've got some new varieties or hopefully new, some new uh, shades of the variety coming up in presentations at the Louisville Convention this fall. Yes, we should see some blues, chocolates, and or lilacs on display. I can't wait. All right, just a reminder to everyone to follow and subscribe to The Rabbitry on Facebook. That will continue to be our hub uh, for all of our current and past episodes of the Best in Show podcast. And don't forget to give us your comments on whichever platform you happen to listen to us, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or Audible. Those comments mean the world to us. And you can always email Brian and I at podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. All right, we're going to end episode 25 with a quote from a dear friend of mine and yours. That's Betty Chu. She sent it to me. It's, it's not her own original quote, but it's, uh, it pays homage to what she said in her podcast. And she says to me, uh, she texted me the other day when she sent me this quote. She said, I sent this to Joe Kim, also another previous guest on our podcast. Betty sends the quote. It says, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And the author is Seneca. So thanks, Betty, for that advent to our, our podcast. Uh, it's a great one. And it certainly... It holds true for the dedication, work, and successes that our special guest tonight, Phil Gould, had and continues to have with his herd of, as they say in England, polls. All right, Bryony, take it away for the last part. As we say every time, talk rabbits and talk cabies. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.